This podcast is published by MDA National to support doctors in managing common medico-legal issues. Hello, it's Norman Swan here. Welcome to another podcast where MDA National doctor members and expert staff share medical legal pearls of wisdom, practical tips and interesting case studies. Today I'm talking to psychiatric registrar and MDA National member Dr Benjamin Vaness on how to preserve your health and well-being. Ben is a Churchill Fellow and past president of the Australian Medical Students Association and he speaks and writes regularly about mental health with an emphasis on students and the medical profession. So what are the statistics, Ben? Well, the statistics on doctors' mental health are probably best elucidated by the Beyond Blue National Mental Health Survey of Doctors and Medical Students, which was published in 2013. And this was a fairly large study. It looked at both doctors and medical students and had a 27% response rate for both groups, which meant they had about 12,000 doctors and 2,000 medical students respectively respond which is broadly similar to Australia's doctor profile, but obviously their selection biases, it was optional to participate in the survey. And essentially, doctors reported substantially higher rates of psychological distress and attempted suicide compared to both the Australian population and other Australian professionals. And speaking specifically about depression, approximately 21% of doctors reported having ever been diagnosed with or treated for depression, and 6% had a current diagnosis. And for anxiety, it was 9% of doctors who said that they've ever been diagnosed or treated for an anxiety disorder and 4% who said they had a current diagnosis. And what was quite alarming as well in this data was that approximately a quarter of doctors reported having thoughts of suicide prior to the last 12 months and 10% reported thoughts of suicide in the previous 12 months with 2% saying that they'd ever attempted suicide. So that's one in 50 doctors. And among that, young doctors and female doctors seem to have higher levels of general and specific mental health problems and reported more work stress. And there were similar findings among the medical student population who also had higher rates of general and specific distress when compared to the general population. And again, female students had higher levels of psychological distress and, and more specific mental health diagnoses than male students. So let's ask the obvious question. Is this because of medicine and training or is it because of the people who are selected and become doctors? Do they pre-morbidly have a propensity to depression and anxiety? I think it would be extremely dangerous to go down a track that says it's the people who are selected into medicine. I don't think that's the problem. The people who come into medicine are typically very high-functioning people who have demonstrated a lot of capability in life. And, and there's no evidence to really support that they enter medicine with mental health problems more than students entering any university course. So the strongest suggestion would be that there's something about the training and the work environment that's probably interacting with some personality factors to result in these levels of distress being above the population level. So the bottom line is there's a substantial burden of mental health issues amongst both medical students and doctors in training. Yes, absolutely. Do we know whether it's going up, going down, staying the same? We'd love to know that, but this is not something which is regularly studied. That Beyond Blue study that I've quoted, it was unfortunately a one-off. It was an expensive and involved exercise. And what I think we're very much lacking is longitudinal data to help show what happens over time because it would be particularly interesting to be able to follow cohorts through and see at what stage things start to change. What are the factors that are known to increase the risk of depression and anxiety or to create 
the problem in the medical workplace. Thinking about the social side of that equation, factors in the workplace, which would not be just for doctors, it would be for anyone in a workplace like this, where they're working in an environment where they're stressed, where they're tired, where they're disconnected from support networks, where the stakes are high, certainly when negative events occur. All of these things can can build. But the concerning thing about this data is that clearly with a prevalence as high as it is, there's something quite broadly negative that's affecting the well-being of doctors. It's not just those sort of few doctors who end up with a negative patient outcome or patient complaint. Uh, it's broader than that. And that's where it, it really leads us as a profession to need to think systemically about ways to change the training and work culture. And do we know what they are before we get on to the individual doctor and managing your own health and well-being? Do we know what things could be better? I mean, there's a lot of talk, particularly in surgery, about bullying the new document, I think, from the College of Surgeons called Operating with Respect. Those are presumably all geared to not just being respectful but and for decent humanity, but also presumably to reduce the incidence of bullying and the psychological consequences. Yes, yeah, so that's all about creating a safe work environment, which should be an absolute minimum standard that one can expect to go to work without being bullied or harassed. That's an important starting point, but what's also necessary is thinking about what are the safe working hours? Are you able to take leave? What are the requirements of training programs in terms of away rotations where people are dislocated from support networks? The way that examination processes are structured and whether or not they're pedagogically sound or perhaps they are as they are for historical reasons and could be changed to result in less stress for their candidates but still very good outcomes in terms of training programs. Uh, and then there's still elements associated with uh, sexism in the workforce and female doctors often in particular seem to have been disadvantaged by things like 12-month employment contracts that make it particularly difficult to take parental leave. And then there are issues with stigma about mental illness as well and being able to uh, nip things in the bud and this relates to legislative issues such as mandatory reporting which is probably unfairly but nonetheless scared off a number of doctors from seeking help because of a, a fear that that will result in a, a report to the regulator. So what is it that you should look for in yourself as a warning sign? I mean, it sounds a silly thing to say. We're talking to medical graduates who've had a training in psychiatry, but you know, it could have been several years or you're in denial. What are the signs, the classic signs that you should be looking for? It's a good question. And the difficulty with uh, doctors is that they're actually very good at compensating for things like depression. So where you might find that Ordinarily, a sign of depression could be, for instance, somebody not attending to work or not performing as well as usual in their role. That can be more difficult to pick up in doctors who are typically very intelligent and have very good high pre-morbid functioning. But you might notice it in yourself and think that you're not performing as well as you were. You might notice that your sleep is impaired, that your appetite has changed, that your weight has changed without you intending to. A common sign might be that you're relying more on alcohol or other substances, that you're not enjoying the activities that you once used to, or that you're having trouble concentrating. There's a, a very simple sort of screening tool as well with two questions where you ask whether someone's depressed or whether they've lost interest in usual activities. And that's, that's actually quite a sensitive question, whether or not you're depressed. 
often people do know if they ask themselves and, and answer honestly. So then the question is where you go for care. I mean, we say to the general public, well, you could go to an online CBT service, of which there are several quite good ones in Australia. Do you go and you know? Do you have your own GP? What's the what's the care seeking that you should embark upon? I would absolutely encourage any any doctor or medical student, even if they don't think they have any problems with depression or anxiety, to have a relationship with their own GP, and that should be ideally someone that they're able to maintain a relationship with over a number of years so that they can get to know you. And if you are in the position where you're in need of care for depression or anxiety or think you might be, then going to them in the first instance is a great approach. Another option is to go to the doctor's health advisory service, which can be contacted by telephone in each state. And obviously, a GP or the doctor's health advisory service can help to connect you with a psychiatrist if that's necessary. So this becomes hard when you say a registrar in training and you do a rural elective and you might just feel a bit isolated and you don't have your own GP. That's presumably where the doctor's advisory service comes in. That's absolutely where the doctor's advisory service could come in. Or also you mentioned online tools and for people particularly with only mild symptoms of depression, that's a, a good starting point as well and is largely accessible in rural areas. There's a program called This Way Up which has a number of different modules available online and they've made those available to uh, medical students and there's no reason a doctor wouldn't be able to access those as well uh, for free um, from their website. How do you improve resilience to this, if, if, if at all? Is there a way of doing that where you can actually sort of, when you're feeling well, you can actually build up your mental strength, if that's the right phrase to use? Yes, I, I think of this somewhat in terms of a toolkit or a toolbox and trying to sort of equip yourself with the appropriate tools while you're well and able. So that's things like getting into good habits with eating, exercise, spending time with people you love and who love and care about you, family, friends, making sure that you're getting an appropriate amount of sleep, planning things in a way that's not going to overburden you. So trying as much as possible if you're in a training program, for instance, to look forward and think about when the major assessments are going to be and thinking about ways in which you can structure your life around that, ensuring you've booked in holidays as far as possible to look forward to. And then going back to the GP point as well, you know, while you're well, that is the time to start establishing a relationship with a good and consistent GP. And you can trial things like mindfulness, mindfulness meditation, see if that's good for you, um, perhaps even trialing cognitive behavioral therapy. And again, that's available you know, online from resources such as This Way Up. Now, presumably in medicine, just as in any other walk of life, there's an unreasonable stigma attached to mental health issues. Yes, absolutely. What should we do as a profession to reduce that stigma between ourselves? Mm, it, it's a great question. And it even relates to the way that we talk about patients who might predominantly be accessing the psychiatric arm of a health service and it goes back to the way we talk about a particular patient in the emergency department or the stigma associated with borderline personality disorder and so partly that's about everyone sort of watching what they say in interactions with peers and not contributing to that culture because that starts to create an 
an other, the idea that people with a mental health problem are a different group and they're a lesser group. And, and that's not true with the rate of depression and anxiety in society as it is. We're all going to know a family member or a friend or most likely you know, multiple of those uh, who suffer from a mental health disorder at some point and certainly at some point in their life. So I think that it is a starting point for us. But then secondly, it's largely a, a matter of us continuing to spread a message like on this podcast that there's nothing about you as a person that's a problem if you're suffering from a mental health disorder. Uh, this is really much the same as any other medical condition and it can be treated. It's just a matter of uh, helping us and, and us helping our peers when we have suspicions that maybe they're struggling to access that care. Which is what I was going to ask you finally, really, which is that if you see one of your colleagues and you see changes in the way that they're behaving or working, it's not a question of confronting them, it's a question of asking them if they're okay and, you know, is everything okay? That's right. And that's a, a sensitive discussion to have, obviously. And there are reasons why people can appear to be underperforming which are completely unrelated to whether or not they have a, a mental health condition. If people are going through a stressful period in their life, for instance, or, or distracted for another reason, uh, that could be the cause. So it's about a, a tactful and sensitive approach, particularly when you know someone fairly well, where you're making clear that you've noticed something and you just wanted to check in to see if they're okay and um, help them to access sort of some help if they needed it. Uh, which also helps with the destigmatization message. The more of those conversations we have, the more commonly accepted it will be to actually ask for help. So in summary then, we should be designing workplaces which are friendly, which are open, which encourage social contact, social connectedness, reduce bullying and harassment, accept help uh, and pace yourself. Really think ahead and um, don't allow life to come and clobber you, you clobber it. Yes, and I'd add to that taking advantage of periods when you're well to really um, maximise your health through your diet, your exercise, engaging with a GP while you're well, and finally the point that we discussed at the end of the interview about being open to approaching a colleague and saying that you're worried for them and you're there if they'd like to talk or if they'd like support accessing any care because looking out for each other is really sort of what we're all all in this health business for. And so we may as well start with ourselves and our colleagues. Ben, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Norman. Here to support you, visit MDA National's website at mdanational.com.au or call 1-800-011-255 for tailored advice specific to your situation, career stage or policy. The information provided is based on the personal experiences of the doctor speaker and does not constitute medico-legal advice from or by MDA National.